Okay, everybody, we have made it to Wednesday. It is Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, welcome back. Mosh, thank you. I think I may sound a little bit better than I sounded on Monday's much podcast. Better, much I, better. I much appreciate you holding down the fort. I tried my best to make you proud. I don't know if you listened to yesterday's <laughs> podcast, but uh, tried to hit all the highlights without you. Mosh, I have to admit, I actually didn't listen, but... What? I know, I know, but I oh. did read the notes in our Google Doc that we use uh, okay. because I had to put today's podcast together and I wanted to make sure I wasn't going over stuff that you already covered. So I, I think that counts. I give you credit for that. I, I missed you yesterday and on this day because I was going over uh, former President Bush. It was the anniversary of his memo asking White House staff not to feed his dog because his dog got <laughs> too fat. And I was like, <laughs> it was really sad doing the story by myself. But today is yet another day. And we've got some good on this day. Uh, but let's get to some headlines here. The takeaways from President Biden's State of the Union address as he attempts to convince the nation it's on the right track just weeks before he'll announce whether he'll be running for re-election. An update on the devastating earthquake in the Middle East. More spy balloon fallout. The Pentagon is apparently trying to call China. And China's not picking up. You're telling me the U.S. is getting ghosted, Mosh? For now, uh, the phone keeps ringing in Beijing. Uh, More layoffs in the tech world, this time at Zoom. Microsoft has a reason that they think you should ditch Google and try Bing again. An update on whether LeBron James made history. A lip reader figured out what Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were talking about at the Grammys. And we've got the tea, as the kids like to say. And Moshe, of course, love on this day. Jill, it's an important day for one of my favorite 1990s one-hit wonders, Right Said Fred. All right, our top story. President Biden delivered the State of the Union address to Congress. It is the midpoint of his presidency and the first address with Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy sitting behind him. It also comes a few weeks before he's expected to announce his decision on whether he's going to run for re-election. So, Mosh, what are your big takeaways? Jill, we saw a very energetic 80-year-old president on Tuesday night, something that is very important as he looks to run for re-election. Uh, we expect to hear whether he will run in 2024 or for 2024 in the next few weeks. Uh, and he already is the oldest president in American history. So energy level, not insignificant last night, and he appeared to have it. He faces a country and a Democratic Party, by the way, that isn't sure they want to give him a second term based on multiple recent polls. So he spent a lot of time on the economy last night, actually more than 10 percent of the 73 minute speech, uh, nearly 10 minutes of which was spent on the economy, the biggest issue for voters. He tried to tout his accomplishments, Biden, looking to portray a country that has improved from the moment he took charge from a reeling economy, height of COVID, a democracy that survived the January 6th test. For him, it was all about optimism. Take a listen to a bit of it. The story of America is a story of progress and resilience, of always moving forward, of never, ever giving up. It's a story unique among all nations. We're the only country that has emerged from every crisis we've ever entered stronger than we got into it. Look, folks, that's what we're doing again. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs. More jobs created in two years than any president's created in four years because of you all. 
He cited unemployment being at a 50-year low, uh, 800,000 new manufacturing jobs, gas prices down from their peak, uh, inflation falling for the last six months. Didn't mention the fact that inflation still is at a several-decade high, but that is the point of these speeches. You emphasize what you've accomplished. You don't spend time on things that you're still working on or things that have gotten worse during your time in office. He did also make a point last night to point to bipartisan areas of progress, uh, legislation that was passed with Republicans and Democrats together, particularly in that last Congress when Democrats were in charge, but they needed some Republican votes. They were talking about things like infrastructure, uh, chips, computer chips being made, both key pieces of bills that he wants people to know about that uh, got some Republican votes. And he said, there is no reason we can't work together in this new Congress. In particular here, this is where things got interesting, because keep in mind, the debt ceiling is a huge issue coming up here. He desperately wants Republicans to lift the debt ceiling uh, from $31 trillion to a couple trillion more that we can borrow. It's been lifted for the last 100 years. Republicans did it three times while Trump was president. And so that is a point Biden tried to make here, being like, why are you putting limits on me that you didn't put on the last guy? So things got kind of contentious with uh, Republicans in the audience. Several of them interrupted, heckled him. Um, Some shouted liar. That was Marjorie Taylor Greene who shouted liar. There's some photos of her circulating on social media where you see how passionate she got. She stood up, shouted liar at him. Actually, the White House is pretty happy with that because that shows Republicans are extremists. That's the way they try to paint them. And so where it got contentious was when Biden brought up Social Security. He noted that several Republicans have talked about cuts, potential cuts, Social Security and Medicare, not all of them, but a couple of them as they look to cut spending. But obviously, he brought it up to try to paint the entire Republican Party that way, saying, you know, you got to elect Democrats because Republicans are going to cut Social Security. The Republicans did not like that. Some got up and booed. Take a listen to a bit of that. Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. So there you heard that. That went on for a bit um, as uh, things. That was probably the most contentious moment of the night. Um, and again, uh, each side takes something away from it. Uh, Republicans say Biden was trying to be provocative. He was lying. Democrats will say Republicans are extremists. They were rude. They were interrupting the president. Um, By the way, Speaker McCarthy had said in the prelude to this speech that he wanted Republicans to behave. He had to shush them vocally a few times during the speech uh, when they were booing him or shouting things at him, um, trying to maintain decorum. And one of my favorite parts of these State of the Union addresses are some of the notable guests and seeing who they decide to invite. So some of the Biden administration guests, the family of Tyree Nichols was there, Bono from U2, a 92-year-old Holocaust survivor, and also the parents of a three-year-old who survived a rare pediatric cancer. Yeah, Jill, I was struck particularly by that Tyree Nichols mom moment that was very powerful um, to hear Biden speak about Tyree as um, she sat there. Part of the point of these guests is they're each there for a particular reason, for a piece of the legislation, or a point the president wants to make. In this case, he wants to push for the passing of the George Floyd Police Reform Act. And interestingly, the president did make a point of both complimenting police officers, saying they're out there on the front lines, and most of them are doing good work. But he said, 
you know, in the case of Tyree Nichols, there's clearly officers who need more training. And that is partially the point of that act. I was also struck by a couple other moments last night. He had Brandon say he's the civilian, the citizen in California who took down the mass shooter in Monterey Park after the shooter a couple of weeks ago had already killed 11 people, showed up to the next location, uh, his gun jammed and Brandon say fought back and grabbed the gun from him. We've played that video on the Instagram account. Uh, also last night in the gallery was Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, who survived uh, the attack on him in his home uh, late last year. He was cheered. One other random moment I should mention, by the way, that's getting a lot of attention online, as Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, the second gentleman, entered the gallery. He and First Lady Jill Biden greeted one another. They uh, looked like what attempted to kiss on the cheek, but it looks like their lips touched briefly. Not surprisingly, uh, those photos are blowing up online. And before we end here, I should mention Republicans have the traditional response. Typically, the other party gets a 10-minute response speech. They give it to somebody in the party. Republicans gave it to the new governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You might remember her from the Trump administration. She gave her speech from Little Rock, focused on the fact that she's 40, the, rep- the president is 80, so she likes to point that out. And then she went on to call him a complete failure, saying he's not qualified to be president. He engages in woke fantasies from the left. She um, talked a bit about that, um, said that big government, including Biden, colludes with big tech to take away your rights. So a lot of kind of uh, hardcore uh, Republican arguments um, against Joe Biden. And that was the oomph, the emphasis of Sarah Huckabee Sanders remarks uh, late last night. Now to the latest on the two massive earthquakes that struck southern Turkey and northern Syria on Monday. Rescue crews desperately continue to search the rubble, but they are dealing with more aftershocks and bitterly cold weather. This is a region, by the way, that's already dealing with years of civil war and a refugee crisis. It's been described, though, as a race against time to find anybody who's still alive in the debris. The death toll has climbed past 7,500, and it's expected to continue to rise. More than 20,000 people have been injured. Turkish President Erdogan declared a state of emergency and says that he will be visiting the area Adding to the damage, though, more than 3,000 buildings collapsed in a quote-unquote pancake mode collapse. Buildings in this part of Turkey where earthquakes are quite common are supposed to be built to withstand really strong earthquakes. But according to NBC News, many of the collapsed buildings appear to have been built from concrete without adequate seismic reinforcement. Even though authorities know that many of these buildings are unsafe, it is still not an easy problem to solve. And that's because retrofitting these buildings is pretty expensive. Yeah, there's outrage across the region, especially in Turkey, uh, in regards to these buildings. On the Syrian side of the border, you're talking about areas where you've had millions of refugees or displaced people already just trying to live in bombed out buildings or tents. And and so that is why you're seeing a lot of issues there where there's not even building requirements. They're living in bombed out buildings. So the situation on the ground is dire. It was dire before these earthquakes, Jill. Uh, The area apparently that is most hard hit already had 13 million residents. Uh, People have been camping out in the snow in makeshift tents or even sleeping in their cars wherever they can find shelter. Remember, it's winter there right now. And so it's going below freezing at night. 
Among the damaged buildings also include UNESCO World Heritage Sites, some buildings that go back hundreds or thousands of years, both in Turkey and Syria. Uh, to your point, Jill, every hour matters in terms of these search and rescue teams uh, trying to find people who are alive. Uh, as you listen to this on Wednesday, it is now more than 48 hours since the earthquake, which means some people have been under the rubble for more than two days, again, in freezing conditions at night. A doctor was on the BBC uh, earlier on Tuesday who was talking about how the average human loses just over about one liter of water a day. Once you lose eight liters of water and you haven't gotten any water or food in your system, that's when you become critically ill. Uh, and so we'll be approaching that moment for many people in the coming 48 to 72 hours. The doctor also noted that every degree below 70 degrees Fahrenheit, the body has to work harder to maintain heat. And again, given that it's below freezing at night, uh, that is a major issue. Though at the same time, we do have some good news. There have been a number of miracle rescues to report. I posted a couple of the videos on Instagram, including a four-year-old that was saved in Turkey, a three-year-old and two-year-old sibling saved under the rubble in Syria, and then an entire family, uh, ABC News posted this video yesterday, that was rescued in another part of Syria. And then there's a story that's really gone viral of this newborn that was rescued from the rubble as a woman reportedly gave birth while she was trapped in the rubble. A cousin was able to rescue the newborn, uh, the cousin telling a news outlet, we heard a voice while we were digging. We cleared the dust and found the baby with the umbilical cord still attached. So we cut it and my cousin took her to the hospital. Unfortunately, the mother, it turns out, passed away in the rubble. The baby right now uh, is in an incubator in the hospital, apparently in uh, stable condition. Unfortunately, though, the mother passed away, the father passed away, four of its siblings passed away, and it's currently being taken care of uh, by relatives. That story is really remarkable, uh, Mosh. You posted, though, another another video on your Instagram page from somebody speaking in Turkish. He's one of the rescuers. And this one really just stayed with me. He says, we hear the voices calling for help and we can't save them. How are we supposed to save them? We've been here since the morning and there's nobody else here to help. Then another person screams, talk louder, and you can hear a woman's voice under rubble calling help. It's just heartbreaking. It's, it, I mean, it, just the scope of the damage is just so remarkable because rescue workers are working on one building and they're next to dozens and dozens and dozens of other buildings and they're hearing voices in the rubble. At the same time, there's another video that's been posted that showed them trying to rescue, this is in Southern Turkey now, uh, people from one building while another building behind them literally collapses as they're trying to rescue people in one building. So the task here is overwhelming. One thing we should mention, rescue teams have come in from dozens of countries around the world, European teams, Germany, uh, Switzerland, the Greeks, uh, the Israelis have sent teams to, to Turkey and Syria, which is an enemy of Israel, is actually accepting aid from the Israelis. We have two teams from uh, the U.S. that have been spoken about, the L.A. County Fire Department and then another team from Fairfax, Virginia. Both uh, departments have specialists in search and rescue in rubble, and that's why they've been sent um, over to Turkey. So really is an all-hands-on effort. The Chinese have sent teams. Uh, the Iranians have sent teams. So uh, really the world stepping up uh, right now to try their best to help uh, both Turkey and Syria deal with the situation. All right, Jill, before we get to the rest of the day's news, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors this week. Let's start with a game changer in the daily vitamin and supplement space, Athletic Greens. I've been using their AG1 supplement since the fall. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy, quick, and lets you get on your day knowing that you've gotten more than 75 important ingredients, tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support your gut health. 
with your first purchase of AG1. Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit athleticgreens.com slash Mo News to take advantage of this offer. While there, you can get a monthly subscription that's discounted or just try it for one month. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for a special deal that will really start to let you take ownership of your health. All right, another partner this week I want to tell you about is Apostrophe Skincare. If you're tired of just hearing the solution to great skin is just drinking more water and you're looking for more help, this platform is an incredible resource. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with expert dermatologists to get customized treatment for your skin. It's very convenient. Apostrophe can help you on your road to a solution for a number of things, including adult acne or dark spots. It's simple to use and can be done from home. You answer several questions, snap a few selfies, and a board-certified dermatologist will create an initial customized treatment plan for you. They have a special deal now for the Mo News audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash monews using our code monews. Simple as that. It's a savings of $15. To get started, again, just go to apostrophe.com slash monews. It's apostrophe, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E, apostrophe.com slash monews, and click to get started, and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Time now for the speed read from CNN, an update on that train derailment in Ohio. Officials say five train cars that contained vinyl chloride, a potentially explosive chemical, are no longer burning after that train derailment. The burning stopped after a controlled release of the unstable toxic chemical on Monday at the train derailment site in East Palestine near the Pennsylvania border. Four of those five cars have been cleared from the wreckage. Crews are working to remove the fifth car. The train had more than 100 cars when it partially derailed Friday. About 20 of those cars were carrying hazardous materials. The NTSB is investigating, uh, but seems like, Mosh, at least a little bit of good news here about the cleanup. Yeah, that's what the officials are saying, though the pictures are pretty remarkable, of just a plume of smoke that could be seen for tens of miles away. It's still not clear, though, when residents will be able to return home. Several thousand were ordered to be evacuated because of this vinyl chloride and these other chemicals that were being released Uh, Apparently, vinyl chloride is a chemical used to make PVC uh, piping, burns easily at room temperature. It can cause, uh, taking it in, can cause dizziness, sleepiness, headaches. It also has been linked to an increased risk of cancer uh, of the liver, brain, lungs, blood cancer. And so breathing in high levels can make you pass out or die if you don't get enough fresh air, which is why they took the evacuations here so seriously. The big concern uh, I'm hearing from some folks who live in the area is downwind. People are smelling this 30, 40 miles away, and they have questions being like, well, we weren't told to evacuate. Uh, We haven't been told much from the governors of Pennsylvania and and Ohio, which really focused on that one mile or a couple mile radius around where the train derailed. And so there are questions continuing for authorities there as to long-term effects here. Uh, And again, if you live downwind from where these explosions took place, uh, why you weren't told to evacuate. You know what, Moshe, it is a tough situation. I remember during really bad fire seasons out in California, you, there was, you could see the smog in New York. At, you know, a few days later or a week or two later, we were. I remember looking outside and hearing on the news them saying, look, this isn't actually like cloud cover right now. It's just the smoke coming from California. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it's, you've got to imagine that this is going to affect not even people 20 and 30 miles away. I imagine we're going to be feeling it a lot further than that, too. 
Yeah, the authorities say that you really have to have long-term exposure to uh, deal with any sort of health impact here. But but either way, uh, questions are being asked and, and uh, cleanup will be a question as to how long will it take to clean up these terrible chemicals and will it be okay to live in these areas for, you know, in the near future. A quick update on the Chinese spy balloon from Foreign Policy magazine. The U.S. Navy published up-close photos of parts of the balloon being salvaged on Tuesday. We posted them on Instagram. The post says the sailors retrieving the debris on Sunday were part of the Navy's specialist explosives team. The device will now be examined to see whether it was indeed spy equipment. U.S. officials have described the balloon as being about 200 feet tall, with the payload portion comparable in size to regional airlines and weighing hundreds or potentially thousands of pounds. And yet nobody was supposed to see it. <laughs> oh, I think the Chinese intended for us to see it, Jill. Um, uh, it's, I think they, they've used various comparisons. I mentioned them yesterday. It's four times the size of the Macy's Snoopy balloon. It's twice the length of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. So uh, anyway, ways to think about it. Uh, Jill, this all comes as we're learning that the Chinese have refused to take our call this week. Apparently, the Pentagon uh, is trying to put the U.S. Defense Secretary on the phone to call his counterpart in Beijing. Pentagon says, we're looking for open communication with the Chinese. Despite this, we will continue to commit to open communication. Beijing ain't answering the phone, at least for now. Uh, there have been months of talks to set up a hotline to avert crises. Uh, you might recall, if you know your Cold War history, there was a red phone between D.C. and Moscow because we both had nuclear weapons and we wanted to make sure we didn't accidentally start a nuclear war with each other during the Cold War. So that red phone was set up and we're looking to set up something similar with the Chinese here. What goes on if that red phone rings? We accidentally set off a nuclear weapon and tell everybody to run? I mean, what? What? Well, I don't even understand. I mean, more significantly, uh, we've lost control of a, a plane or something near your region. We're not attacking Moscow. I mean, there's a number of scenarios where they wanted to be able to chill things out in case there was an accident or something not purposeful during that time. I was I was kind of kidding, but I, I it is a great idea, and it just shows you how fraught relations are right now. Totally. And the lack of communication could mean that, you know, we go from a Cold War to a hot war. Um, so they're trying to prevent that. So hopefully someone in Beijing picks up the phone at some point. We do want to mention, uh, check it out. We did a special podcast with Josh Rogan. He's a Washington Post columnist. He specializes in China. He wrote a book all about China. Part one was out yesterday, all about the balloon and, and also the security issues with TikTok. Part two is out today talking about COVID and all sorts of other issues. Yeah, so once you get through with our daily podcast, we have two, uh, a two-parter, a two-part interview for you to listen to this week or you know, maybe for your weekend enjoyment. Some light listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Jill, I, I really enjoyed doing the interview with you. And I think uh, for anyone interested in all things China, it does give you context and history um, to really help you understand you know, the balloon in the scope of things. So I've listened to Josh on a bunch of other podcasts, actually, throughout the years. And I read his column all the time in the Washington Post. He happens to be on paternity leave right now. And anytime anything breaks with China, I'm always like, get Josh Rogan, let's do a special <laughs> podcast. And I was so psyched that we actually got to do it. And it ran pretty long. So we made it a two-parter. 
Okay, some more tech layoffs to report from CNBC. Zoom on Tuesday announced plans to cut about 1,300 workers or 15% of its workforce. The CEO wrote in a blog post that as the world continues to adjust to life after the COVID pandemic, the company needs to adapt to the uncertainty of the global economy as well as its effect on our customers. Zoom experienced a huge boom during the pandemic when people were forced to work from home. They also turned to video chat software to stay in touch with colleagues, friends, and family. Do you remember Zoom happy hours? Uh, he's- I, 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 let me tell you something. I don't want to remember Zoom happy hours, Jill. <laughs> uh, the CEO saying the cuts will impact every organization across uh, across Zoom. Yeah, and the CEO, Eric Young, uh, says that he plans to reduce his own salary in the coming year by 98%. He is also foregoing his bonus uh, for this year, though we should keep in mind, as you hear that, that most CEOs also have millions of shares, uh, sometimes worth millions of dollars or more, something to keep in mind. You might recall that Zoom exploded, its growth exploded, the stock price went crazy high at the height of COVID, and so they did a lot of hiring because they thought they were going to grow. And then there was the inevitable collapse as the world opened up again. And so Zoom is the latest company to be dealing with these sort of uh, layoffs kind of post-reopening. At the same time, this is just the latest in the tech layoffs we've been telling you about. Dell announced plans uh, recently to cut more than 6,000 jobs. And back in January, Google, Microsoft, Salesforce were among the companies who also announced job cuts. From the Miami Herald, South Florida athletes leery of being made to reveal menstrual cycles. Moshe, I know this is a story that's getting a ton of play on your Instagram feed. The Florida High School Athletic Association's board of directors will consider a proposal later this month that would make it mandatory for teenage girls who want to compete in school sports to answer questions about their menstrual cycle and refusing to answer could conceivably jeopardize the ability to participate in sports. Several female athletes interviewed by the Miami Herald say they are leery of the policy, wondering why schools need to collect and store such information. A 16-year-old Miami Beach High volleyball player in her junior year told the paper, I think it's kind of disturbing and an invasion of privacy. Yeah, that's a lot of feedback uh, that they've been receiving. We're going to be watching these meetings that are taking place in Gainesville, Florida on February 26th and 27th. That's where they will consider this proposal. Right now, it's just a proposal by an advisory board to the Florida High School Athletic Association, but it has ignited a firestorm uh, around the politics of this. The concern is that details on the menstrual cycle or lack of one could be misused or weaponized and given to people with no medical background, like coaches. Right now, the question is optional, as in, if you're a female high school athlete, you have the option of answering these questions. The transition here, the mandate here, the proposal here, really, is to make the question mandatory, because it's been on the form now as an optional thing for about two decades. Uh, It's also an optional question in a number of other states, and includes questions about when you had your first menstrual period, when the most recent one was, how long the interval period is. A member of the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee that's proposing this Uh, believes that the question should be mandatory as opposed to optional because they believe it goes with national guidelines for sports physicals uh, to ensure there's no medical issues for the female athletes. The national guidelines, though, do not say it should be mandatory. They suggest it should be optional. At the same time, this all comes in the backdrop in Florida in regards to some of the new restrictions and laws they've put against transgender athletes. And so you have a lot of people in the LGBTQ community who are concerned that this is uh, a proposal related to that that will uh, continue to 
unfairly infringe upon those in that community. We should note, though, that this proposal did not come straight from the governor, but again, from an advisory committee to the high school association, and they will be considering this in just about two weeks from now. Part of the problem here, too, is that this information isn't staying with physicians. In other states that ask this type of stuff, it stays in the hands of private doctors. In this case, it's school officials that are going to be having it, to which I I understand why a lot of girls are like, none of your business, coach. Right, like, (laughs) why, why should my assistant volleyball coach with no medical background, like, know when my menstrual cycle is and like what you know what what does that mean and it also comes against the backdrop jill of of the um roe v wade fallout and abortion restrictions look i'll just say as a woman as somebody who played high school sports and played sports my whole life i feel like they're delving into an area that they perhaps shouldn't getting your period for when you're a teenager 12 13 14 15 whatever year you get it it's could be awkward. It's not something that, at least when I was growing up, that everyone talked about right away. If you got it really early, you didn't necessarily want other kids to know. If you got it really late, sometimes that was embarrassing. So I see why this is uh, ruffling feathers. Okay, now to a climate story we're watching from the journal Nature Communications. As glaciers melt and pour massive amounts of water into nearby lakes, a new study finds that 15 million people, one five, 15 million people across the globe live under the threat of a sudden and deadly outburst flood, is what the scientists call it. More than half of those 15 million people uh, live in just four countries, India, Pakistan, Peru, and China, according to the study. There's a second study coming out that will uh, delve deeper into this. It's a threat that hasn't been talked about as much, and that was one of the reasons they want to get the study out there. But one million people around the world live within just six miles of potentially unstable glacial-fed lakes, according to the study. Three lake basins in the U.S. and Canada rank high for threats, but they're not nearly as high as areas in Asia and the Andes with few people in the danger zone. They're in Alaska's Kenai Peninsula, the Mendelhall Glacier near Juneau, and the area around northeast Washington. Scientists say so far it doesn't seem like climate change has made floods more frequent, but as glaciers shrink with warming, the amount of water in the lakes grows, making them more dangerous in those rare situations when dams burst. From The Verge, a follow-up to the preview that most did yesterday, Microsoft on Tuesday announced a new version of its search engine, Bing. Remember Bing? Bing? Yes, it's back. Uh, It's powered by an upgraded version of the same AI technology that underpins the chatbot ChatGPT. The company is launching the product alongside new AI-enhanced features for its Edge web browser. They promise that the two will provide a new experience for browsing the web. Microsoft's CEO, Satya Nadella, called it a new day in search. He argues that web search hasn't changed in decades, but that AI can deliver information more quickly than traditional methods. Unlike chat, GPT alone, the new Bing can also retrieve news about recent events. The search engine was even able to answer questions about its own launch, citing stories published by news sites in the last hour, according to Verge. Jill, we never give enough love to Bing, but then again, most people don't, which is why we don't typically talk about them. According to the latest numbers, about 84% of humanity uses Google for their search. Bing comes in at about 9%. 
Uh, and I don't know how many of those people are just people who didn't know how to change the default on their uh, Microsoft browser, Jill. Anyhow, in addition to the new Bing, the new and improved Bing, Microsoft is launching two new AI-enhanced features to its Edge browser uh, called Chat and Compose. They'll be embedded in the sidebar, something to check out, especially if uh, you're into the Edge browser. This all comes against the backdrop of Google, which has been caught off guard by ChatGPT is really just frankly freaking out about the thing. They have triggered a code read internally about ChatGPT. They're very worried that it, you know having uh, an AI competitor will really start to eat into uh, their biggest revenue driver, search. And so they've actually called back their founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, uh, back to HQ to help them deal with all of this. And so Google this week unveiled their own chat GPT competitor called Bard, B-A-R-D. Uh, right now it's experimental and only a small group of people are playing with it. But apparently the rest of us will get to use it sometime soon. You know, when we were saying that Google hasn't changed much and, and search hasn't changed much, the only real change has, in my mind, been negative, which is all of the sponsored ads that come in. So it used to be that you would just search. The beauty of Google was that it was so simple and you yeah. would, it was clean and you would just type in what you were looking for and then thousands of choices would come up and they were all just kind of exactly what you were searching for. Now, I don't know, at least for me, the whole top row is sponsored posts. And That's then how they're like making their to, money, Jill. Exactly. That's so, how they're making their big money. I guess to say that not only has search not really changed, if it's changed, it's been for the worse. And so it'll be really interesting to see what this AI functionality, um, how it improves things, how it's able to customize, personalize, anticipate your needs in a new way until, of course, they decide they need to advertise off of it and the bot suddenly becomes less helpful, which we know how this story is going to go. All right, now our next story comes to us from ESPN. LeBron did it. King James is now officially the all-time scoring leader in NBA history in a Tuesday night game before his home crowd in L.A. He needed 36 points to beat the all-time record, and he didn't even need the whole game. He clinched the record in the third quarter. King James surpassed the record held for nearly 40 years by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who first broke the record himself. Back in 1984, Kareem had 38,387 points. And in the third quarter of last night's game, James scored his 38,388th point. It's a record that was once considered unbreakable. It's only changed hands once. Will Chamberlain had the original scoring lead. Abdul Jabbar passed him in 84. By the way, that was even before LeBron was born. LeBron is 38 years old. He has spent 20 years in the league. The cheers from the crowd were incredible with every score. As we got closer to him achieving the all-time scoring lead, they actually paused the game at that point, did a special presentation. LeBron delivered a speech to the home crowd. The audience was jam-packed with stars Jay-Z, Bad Bunny, Denzel Washington, Dwayne Wade, John McEnroe. There were other Lakers legends in the crowd, including Abdul-Jabbar. He was there to witness LeBron breaking his record. Magic Johnson was there. James Worthy was there. The NBA commissioner was there. Everyone has been waiting for this moment. And it appears the record will be safe for a while, partly because James himself shows no signs of letting up. He's on pace to actually eclipse 40,000 points 
next season. And he's under contract for one more season after that as well. LeBron has said actually that he wants to stay in the league long enough for his son, LeBron James Jr. to get into the league. That's something that could happen two years from now, potentially three years from now. The active player in the NBA who's the closest to James, by the way, is Kevin Durant, uh, who plays for Brooklyn. He has just under 27,000 points. So he's about 12,000 points behind James. It would take him another six or seven seasons to even get to this mark. And by the way, who knows what James will be at by then, given again, he shows no signs of letting up. So a remarkable moment there in the NBA last night. Okay, now to my favorite story of the day. From the New York Post, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck's tense conversation at the 2023 Grammys has been revealed. We think. Okay, Moj, you were my first text during the Grammys when I'm watching Smokey Robinson and Stevie Wonder singing their hearts out, okay? And everybody else in the audience having the time of their lives. And then a quick pan over to Jennifer Lopez dancing and then to Ben Affleck, who looks like he's on a four-hour Zoom conversation or something, or like at his kid's clarinet show. Right, he was bringing Zoom energy to the Grammy Awards. (laughs) You're like, you've married J-Lo, your love of your life, you're at the Grammy Awards, you're listening to this classic performance, everyone is rocking out in there, and Ben could not be more unhappy. And by the way, it wasn't just that performance, it's not that he doesn't like Motown, he just wasn't, every time they went to him, he just was like... And then notably, um, there was a conversation that appeared a little bit tense. So it appeared that J-Lo was aware that her husband was going viral for his miserable appearance during the award show Sunday night and turned around to chastise him a bit so that he would improve his facial expressions. According to a lip reader who spoke to the Daily Mail, Lopez said, look more friendly, look motivated. And then Affleck replied, I might. Something feels off with that (laughs) That doesn't feel like a normal conversation, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's lip reading, so it's the best we can do. But luckily for us, it was caught on camera because they came back from commercial break and Trevor Noah happened to be sitting next to them. So we were able to catch this. Um, A source insists to page six that the couple are perfectly fine despite Affleck's questionable resting face. Lopez went into PR overdrive after music's biggest night. She wrote on social media, always the best time with my love, my husband. Uh, She posted that on Instagram. Yeah, are we buying it? <laughs> no, something is off. Yeah, no, it, it seemed like something was off. He seemed unhappy. Uh, I've seen, I have seen a separate explanation that apparently he was just has been exhausted uh, by what he's been up to lately and, uh, and was having a difficult time <laughs> staying awake. Uh, Lopez, of course, was there. She was a presenter for the Best Pop Vocal Album, which ended up going to Harry Styles. Uh, and we didn't catch her and Affleck on the red carpet. So for those of us, um, they called it back in the in the Soviet Union days, Kremlinologists, where you try to like interpret what's happening in a place where you don't quite know what's happening. So the Kremlinology happening into the Affleck J Lo relationship is also on overdrive. As people are like, what was actually happening there? What is the state of the relationship? Um, so I guess it remains a mystery for now, unless you buy the spin. So my mom made a good point. She's like, Ben Affleck is an actor. If he's like, couldn't he just act at this point? First of all, they're at the Grammys. You're surrounded by every musician throughout the years. They're all performing. I don't know why you just wouldn't be psyched about it. But even if you're not, just act. That's what you do for a living. Pretend it's fun. 
All right, Jill, with that, let's head into On This Day in History, which this week is brought to us by Bowl and Branch Sheets. Bowl and Branch has a special deal for Mo News listeners. Their sheets are organic cotton. They get softer with every wash. Uh, we're loving them. We're looking at getting a second set right now in our house. And right now, Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Bowl and Branch, are offering 15% off plus free shipping for a limited time with the promo code MONEWS. We'll have more on how you get that deal at the end of On This Day. All right, Jill, as we do here, starting a little far back in history, on this day in 1879, 144 years ago, we got the first idea for time zones around the world. Uh, We have Sir Sanford Fleming, a Scottish engineer who immigrated to Canada to thank for the idea. He was actually an inventor, and he invented a whole bunch of stuff. And he was like, we should have regional time zones. So he introduces it on this day in 1879. Eventually, there was this international convention that happened five years later, and they adopted regional time zones. So uh, as we sit here in the Eastern time zone recording this uh, podcast. All right, more recent history. It's the 52nd birthday today of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. For a while, there was only the New York Stock Exchange. And then securities traders were looking for a place to trade over-the-counter securities, which they couldn't trade over at the NICE, as it's called. And so to enable traders to trade more efficiently, they set up a trading system called officially the National Association of Securities Dealers Automated Quotations, or NASDAQ began trading on this day in 1971 and has uh, been known as the index in most recent years that brings you uh, the best gauge for how tech stocks are doing. Jill, I know you uh, spent a while covering uh, all things business on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Did you ever head over to the NASDAQ? You know what? I've never been to the NASDAQ. And one of the reasons is because they don't have any human traders anymore. <laughs> There's it's no entirely electronic. <laughs> Sometimes you can see a reporter there for business channels and they're literally just standing in front of a TV screen because they're like, there's no people behind them. All right, a couple birthday mentions today. Composer John Williams, the legend, turns 91 years old today. Williams is still doing his thing. Uh, I have known some friends in recent years who've been going to his uh, shows on the West Coast, on the East Coast. He, of course, is famous for dozens and dozens of famous uh, soundtracks and themes, Indiana Jones, the NBC Olympics theme, Jaws, and so a happy 91st, John Williams. I feel like never has more been done with just two notes, in like for Jaws. I mean, it's just synonymous with, okay, something bad's about to happen. And there's an interesting story there. There's a whole Spielberg documentary on HBO, and they had a whole animatronic uh, shark they were going to use for it, and it kept uh, dysfunctioning. So they had to come up with a solution to indicate the shark was near. And so Williams came up, him and Spielberg worked together and come up with this two-chord thing. And can you think of anything that's more effective? Like, no matter what animatronic thing they had available in the early 80s, that music. Those two notes were scarier than any sort of animatronic thing you could come up with. Williams, of course, by the way, also classic uh, movie, Home Alone. He also uh, composed the Home Alone soundtrack, which is why the music there feels so big and so classic. A couple other birthdays here. Actor Nick Nolte is 82 and Seth Green is 49. And I will forever know him as the son of Dr. Evil and Austin Powers. Hug, hug, give me a hug. (laughs) 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 <laughs> the therapy scene is amazing uh, when they're like in in like uh, father-son therapy in uh, the Austin Powers movie. All right, a couple other pop culture mentions before we leave on this day. Taxi Driver, the classic movie directed by Martin Scorsese, had its world premiere on this day in 1976. And then a couple 90s mentions as, as we do here, Jill. On this day in 1994, 29 years ago today, Saved by the Bell, The College Years aired its series finale. 
But I don't know, Moshe, Saved by the Bell, the college years, like most spinoffs, not the same. The weakest. It was the weakest of the Saved by the Bell. They were really trying to stretch that show uh, for a bit. But it did mark the return of Kelly Kapowski after we lost her senior year of high school. For those of you who uh, were aficionados to Save by, the, Save by the Bell like I was in the 90s. As did Beverly Hills 90210, which brought um, Tiffany Amber Thiessen on. Correct. So that was the deal. She leaves Save by the Bell for Beverly Hills 90210 and then will come back for the college years. And one more thing we promised at the top of the podcast. On this day, 31 years ago, February 8th, 1992, Right Said Fred reached number one on the Billboard charts with their hit, I'm Too Sexy. I'm too sexy for the shirt, too sexy for the shirt, too sexy, sexy it, hurts. it hurts. This was like, you couldn't get away in the early 90s without hearing this song on repeat. It was like a cultural hit. Number one in the UK, number one in Australia, number one in the US. Anyway, right said Fred, uh, it's actually a, a brother team. One is named Richard, one is named Fred. This was like their big hit. Um, and then as I was looking into this for today's podcast, I found out that they were actually also co-writers on Look What You Made Me Do by Taylor Swift, because she actually lifted a beat from that song. And so as part of the deal, she made them co-writers on Look What You Made Me Do. So if you listen very closely after she goes, oh, and goes into the chorus of Look What We Made You Do. Look what you it, made me do. Look what you made. Yeah, I hear it. Yeah. They love so repetition, she, these guys. So right said Fred. So today, if you want to take away one thing from today's podcast, it is that Right Said Fred of I'm Too Sexy was a partial inspiration to one Taylor Swift. And with that, our thanks again to Bull and Branch Sheets for sponsoring this week's On This Day in History. A reminder again that they're offering right now to the Mo News community 15% off plus free shipping. You can head over to bullandbranch.com slash monews. That is B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch.com slash monews for the deal. All right. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Appreciate all those reviews. Appreciate those of you who are also tuning into our interview, our All Things China interview. We had an episode yesterday with Josh Rogan, another one coming out later today. And of course, don't forget to follow us over on Instagram at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H for the latest and greatest. Jill, we'll see you here tomorrow. Okay. Bye, everyone.